welcome everybody out to episode 95, only five more to 100 today on Utah in the Weeds. My name is Tim Pickett. I am the host of Utah in the Weeds, podcast about cannabis and cannabis culture and medical cannabis, and today, uh, psilocybin and religion and God and spirituality and experience with Steve Urquhart. Steve is the founder of the Divine Assembly, a church that is premised on magic mushrooms and psilocybin and interacting with the divine. We have a great conversation today. Steve also teaches public health at the University of Utah School of Medicine in their public health department. He was a state senator here in Utah, represented Washington County down south, and is a phenomenal guy. Lots to say. Uh, got him fired up there at the end. If you uh, listen, although if you if you get all the way to the end, a couple of guys just talking about the cannabis program and really the opportunity that we have to move things forward uh, with with society, spirituality. Heck, we could even bring back God into the community. For those of you who are not subscribed to Utah in the Weeds, it helps us out a ton. Um, we've, we've got more and more subscribers every week. We're so happy with the response. And heck, we're coming up on 100 uh, episodes. So stay tuned. Next week, Bijan and Paul. Bijan is the founder of Beehive Medical Cannabis Pharmacy here in Utah. And Paul Henderson, the CEO of High Times, and also one of the partners in Beehive Pharmacy in Salt Lake City, Utah. That is our 420 week, Spirit Week, Cannabis Christmas coming up for all of you who uh, are part of the cannabis program here in Utah. And for those of you, uh, three of you who listen outside of Utah, thanks for being a part of this. Enjoy this episode and reach out to us on Discover Marijuana on YouTube. I know this is a lot to uh, to remember. Discover Marijuana on YouTube. That's the place to get a hold of us. All of these episodes are uploaded there. And there's another place for you to subscribe and learn more about cannabis and medical cannabis and all the sciencey stuff about cannabis. So enjoy this episode with Steve Urquhart. This is one of my favorite conversations. So, Steve Urquhart, what what are you up to? Um, so, I'm a lawyer, and I still practice a little law. Uh, mostly, that's just friends and family stuff. Um, I have a few paying clients, and uh, I teach up at the U of U Medical School. I teach in the Division of Public Health, teach uh, health policy, and I'm busy running my mushroom church, the Divine Assembly. The were you involved in the legislation this uh, this spring when they were trying to develop the was like an allocation to study whether or not they should let psilocybin into Utah? I can't really say I was involved in that at all. Um, you know, very very peripheral to yeah, probably not even saying I was involved at all. You know, just kind of followed it and talked with some folks and gave a few suggestions here and there 
but I'm happy with it. I like the composition of who's on the task force and, uh, I like the direction of the task force. Um, you know, even before it starts, I like that it, uh, destigmatizes psychedelics to some degree by being worthy of study by the state. So yeah, I think this is a big step forward. What do you think about the cannabis law here in Utah? Um, that that's a very complex issue there. My feelings on that. Um, you know, at this point, I think it's decent. Um, I think it took, you know, the Utah legislature does a good job when moneyed interests are involved. And now that there's money in it, um, I think that the law keeps improving and, uh, uh, I'm not a patient, so I, you know, sure don't want to speak on any patient's behalf. I'm not part of it. Um, you know, I go to Wendover to get what I need. Um, and, uh, as I think <laughs> tons of Utahns do, it's amazing. The revenue we're giving away, uh, that parking lot is full of Utah plates as I assume, as I assume the mesquite dispensary is too. Oh uh, um, yeah. I mean, it was built, it was, I, yeah, I know the owner or know uh, a little bit about the owners and the, the group, right? I mean, it's just, it's built for us. Yeah. Well, it is. I mean, I, you know, I usually talk with the people who are there at the cash register, the people grabbing it and, uh, uh, ask them about all the Utahns and they say, oh, that's all we get. That's, that's our, that's our business. Right. But, you know, so obviously it's not working completely well if that's the case. Um, but I think that it's doing, it's doing okay by patients. It's probably better than nothing. Yeah. What, what makes you not want to be involved or did you, is that just out of convenience or? Well, I was very involved. Um, you know, in the legislature, I ran the CBD bill in the Senate and then helped, uh, with, with attempts in the Senate, Mark Madsen's bill. Um, and then the, uh, the initiative, when it started to go wonky there at the end and uh, the LDS church started to play, and I think they were absolutely playing games, just they wanted anything they could call a compromise, whether people agreed to sit at a square table or a round table. They were going to hold up something, uh, you know, like Lion King holding up baby Simba saying, here it is, we have a compromise, you don't need to vote for this. And I think that was... Uh, I think that was dark and dirty. I think it was a cheap attempt to get people to vote against the initiative. And then if it failed, despite all their promises, uh, they would have said, oh, yeah, people don't want it. So, you know, I think it started out dishonestly, stupidly, um, you know, and then the bit about the uh, state was going to dispense a Schedule One. Uh, federally illegal substance that was yes it still was comes up still comes up they were trying to protect uh kids who had these conditions and keeping it in elementary schools and high schools where these kids are like this is in a locked case and may i remind listeners that schools are like pharmacies they have a ton of medications in them all the time but they were saying the same thing you're going to dispense uh federally illegal substance you're gonna you're gonna let us carry around like uh they compared it to heroin yeah well and if if you remember that's uh the state was going to be the the pharmacies as they call them 
Yes, um, Central Phil. And I just use Central Phil. And so I really don't think that the people involved are that dumb. I think that it was something that they knew could be locked up in the courts for years and the state would ultimately lose, which they would have. Um, so I worked with uh, Truce and Christine Stenquist um, to just try to get the truth out. And my wife and I started the Utah Bee um, the, the point of that, we started it during that campaign to try to get, you know, I'm sure what you're doing, to try to get truth out there. Uh, Utah journalists are overworked. I think that you look at the Trib, for example, a lot of great young journalists, but I, I cannot believe their workload. They need to get out so much work product that it's difficult for them to dig deep on many studies. And here there's just no time because it was on the ballot. So, Knowing how the church works, knowing how the legislature works, um, we wanted to get out some truth, get out some stories quickly, knowing that the media would at least read it and it would help give them a start on where they could look with their superior skills and resources. And So, yeah, the Utah Bee is out there and uh, we still run it. Um, we call it Altering the Hive and it's about cannabis, psychedelics and alcohol. And uh, have a lot of fun with that. But that was my involvement, was working with Christine and Truce to try to battle back a lot of the dishonesty that was coming from the legislature and the LDS church. And, you know, we give ourselves right or wrong. Um, you know, we all need to be the heroes in our own stories. And uh, the Utah Bee, we give ourselves a little credit for helping keep that above the 50% level in the vote. Yeah. And Christine's been an activist clear through, you know, s even till through today, really involved uh, with Truce in trying to get their message out that what, you know, what they, and I, I don't, is it wild that I just about said what they consider truth as if our political system has uh, biased me so much that yeah. truth is relative to the position that you, that you speak from? Well, to some degree, that's all of us, right? I mean, my version of uh, how this passed, what it was about, that's a truth to me based on what I saw. Is that an objective truth? Probably not. Yeah. So, okay, Matt, fair, fair point. What, uh, when you teach at the University of Utah, I'm fascinated with education. I feel like if I was, uh, you know, I could retire tomorrow and I'd be a lifetime student somewhere. Um, what it, what's the, uh, you teach in the medical school in the public health department, right? Uh, they're on Wakara. Right. Yeah. Right. right. Um, you've, you've spent some time there, right? That's where the PA program is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Spent, spent a significant amount of time right there. And I think we were underneath you guys, uh, yeah. in the basement for a while. Um, what courses do you teach? So I only teach two. I teach, uh, health policy and leadership to medical students and PhD public health students. And then uh, two years ago, I picked up a course on the Korean campus uh, just via Zoom, and that's uh, health systems. It's great stuff. We go after the essential premises of public health. Uh, we go over social determinants of health. In the PhD MD course, we go over, you know, kind of start, well, just the history of public health, what it is, and then we get into uh, Medicare, Medicaid, 
move forward to the ACA. And uh, it's, it's, it's a pretty interesting course. We bring in, get to bring in a lot of public health practitioners. And when I inherited the course, it was kind of a who's who. Who in Utah has done big things in public health? And I tried to keep those big prominent players. But I also am a big believer that I have friends in low places, um, borrowing that from Garth. And uh, I brought in some folks who really were down and out in life and then have risen above and went on to get some degrees and done prominent things in the community. I mean, for example, I bring in Christine to talk about medical cannabis and the fight for that. You know, she was a bedridden patient for 16 years and then kind of a Mr. Smith goes to Washington, Aaron Brockovich story. She caned her way up to the Capitol. And I think as patient zero, she had a huge part in changing the state. I bring in Mindy Vincent, who was a 17 year IV drug user um, in and out of jail. Uh, you know, just, just really a litany of difficult things there. And she went into the uh, court program and got some life skills, has got two master's degrees, started the Utah Harm Reduction Coalition. Um, I bring in a former sex worker. And, you know, to me, that's public health. Public health is in the trenches. Yes, we have the officials who run it out of nice offices with big titles, but it, Public health is a lot about the people who are down in the trenches and community health workers as a state. We just recognize community health workers as a as a discipline, as a certified group. And that's where the rubber meets the road in public health. And so I'm really excited to introduce those people and those concepts to to a lot of students who largely have been in academia. Right. And right. Their whole uh, their, their whole life. Yeah. And so might not know any sex workers, might not know uh, any IV drug users. Uh, so and they really they really love those people. Uh, you know, Mindy, I uh, it's it's so funny. Um, you know, <laughs> she'll drop like 10 F-bombs on them. And, uh, <laughs> and <laughs> that's just who she is. And, and, you know, she is she's just seen so much of life and uh, she talks like someone who has seen it, wants others to understand it. And the students really just love her and love Christine, love love people who've been out doing and experiencing and and achieving. People don't uh, that it's one point of the medical cannabis program that I think is uh, like it's it's always important to showcase or to like get these individual stories out because. There's so much still a stigma with the cannabis program, uh, especially that it's there's just a bunch of people who want to get high and we're just legal. We're just kind of creating this gateway so they can do that. And there is a there is a decent portion of of the card holders here in Utah that I would say, you know, might fit that um, mold. However, you you might look, you've got a you've got to have a program or else the 72 year old who was addicted to opioids and, you know, changed their life around or somebody with neuropathy. I've got an interview in, in May, you know, somebody with neuropathy so bad they couldn't walk, uh, gets help. I'm okay. If, you know, if 10,000 people get access to something that's relatively safe, if I can help that, you know, those four or five people. Yeah. You feel I feel like that's where public health 
like the balance is you constantly are fighting for funding and for programs yeah. to help the to help the few really yeah. really really help the few and then there's always this fight against the fraud and abuse argument yeah, yeah and, and, and we always and we always have to weigh relative cost relative risks and uh uh what i tell them when i bring in christine is uh, to talk about her fight and the fight for medical cannabis in utah i tell them look in in big ways you're not going to get this because you're going to take for granted what she did what she's talking about because things have changed so much it was right. only very few years ago that lawmakers thought the only people who use cannabis were stoners and yep. given how this state leans, they they were degenerate stoners, right? I mean, these were these were not people <laughs> you wanted to associate with. I mean, that really was the the not only the predominant view, almost the universal view up at the legislature, and just pure mis misinformation, pure stigmatization. Um, we take so much for granted now, but yeah, when you when you really can look at it dispassionately without the stigma. It, it's very low risk. I mean, cannabis is a low, low, low risk to society when you legalize it. I mean, the big risk when it's illegal is, well, then it is underground and you do have outlaws who are dealing with it. And, you know, your risk comes from the fact that it, it, I mean, you know, I picked this up from Mindy and I know she picked it up elsewhere, but this stuff isn't, isn't illegal because it's dangerous. It's dangerous because it's illegal. Yeah, there's so, a lot of truth to that. And in fact, it's more dangerous now because the potency for that exact reason. It's yeah. been illegal for so long that they've had, they've there has been a monetary incentive to in, to make it stronger and stronger and stronger yeah. so you have to smuggle less of it to the US. Yeah. And so now we're bringing in the the other cannabinoids that have really been yeah breed it out because yeah, people want to get stoned off. It was, it was off THC. But so from a public health perspective, my biased perspective, uh, the risk of cannabis in a good program is very, very low. And so, as you say, there are people who absolutely benefit from it. I would say absolutely need it. I mean, for example, we are really concerned about the opioid epidemic in this state. Well, chronic pain is a real thing. And you need yeah. something to help. And uh, cannabis for a lot of people is that help. And it, it is so benign compared to opioids that the risk of this stuff is very low and the benefit of it for some people is very high. And so, as you say, if if part of it is that some people are going to, you know, go to paper factory, paper mills and, and get get the cards that they might not really merit, if we're going to have people using it recreationally who cares i mean seriously who cares the risk is so low and the benefit is so high for some people you kind of need to err on that side of well let's make sure we're doing what we need to do to get it into the hands of people who need it which of course largely includes cost and that's where the utah program is not doing a great job our costs are still much too high from a public health standpoint and cannabis policy is there like do you feel like it's uh, <clears throat> this, the velocity or the speed at which things are changing is increasing? Because it feels like that on my side. Like, um, like you said, five years ago, there was this almost universal 
feeling and and thinking that it was terrible and you weren't going to legalize it at all. Uh, you have the compromise and then you have the industry now involved. And is that, I don't know, how does public health policy deal with this and change with this? Yeah. Um, you know, I think that things are moving rapidly. It's just insane to me that it's still federally illegal when a huge majority of the states have decriminalized it. Yeah. You know, people want to say states have legalized it. Well, they really can't. You know, it's 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 decriminalized states that if you use it according to X, Y, Z, then, yeah, we won't consider it a crime. But it always is a crime. right? You know this. And um, so first off, that that creates a weird situation for public health. Um, It's still very difficult to get good data, good science and public health should all be based on data. And we're still struggling to experiment with cannabis because it is federally, it's schedule one. And uh, you need the research, you need the data to move it off schedule one. And that's just, you know, we're just caught in a catch-22 there. So public health likes to deal with data. It's tough to do that with cannabis. Um, so you kind of have to look past that. Maybe you don't have the best data. What data do you have and how can you work with that? And uh you know, I think it comes down to what I just said. The risk of this is objectively low. Uh, the benefit seems to be quite significant for folks. And so from a public health perspective, what I'm concerned about is, okay, how do we get it to the right people, get the wrong people out of the business, and how do we get it to people in a cost-effective way? And that's where I would like to see our system improve. I don't care. I really don't care if it's ever adult use, you know, or as people say, recreational in Utah, because just, it's pretty easy to get. I mean, my perspective, thank you, Oregon, um, for just flooding all of the West with a black market cannabis. Yeah. So they have a, they have an abundance. It is spilling out (laughs) by the, by the hundreds of pounds. So recreationally, anyone really can get it. Um, Public health perspective, uh, what are you getting? Do you know what you're getting? Do you know what's really in it? It's better if it is loosely regulated, if it's monitored, but, um, you well, know, yeah, organs- cause then you could, you could keep it. Wouldn't you think that like better public health policy in that regard, better regulation, you could keep the wrong people from using it. If we want, you know, everybody under 21 not to use it. Well, I mean, let's go back to the opioid crisis. Um, let's go back to H. Let's go back to the deadly one, heroin, in in injection centers, injection sites. Uh, I'm God. I'm blanking on the term, but uh, safe consumption sites. I think we properly yeah. call them. Um, not a single person has ever died at at a safe consumption site, and heroin is absolutely deadly because there they're taking it at a place where people can. Where, where the dangers can be mitigate, mitigated in significant part. Um, so, yeah, if we can look at things objectively and deal with them on the basis of data and harm prevention, great things can happen. And uh, cannabis, for the longest time, we weren't using any harm reduction principles um, when we were, it was just an outright ban. And now that that is becoming somewhat looser, uh, by action of the states and largely by destigmatization, we're having a lot of harm reduction principles come in. 
and that's why I'm saying the risk of cannabis, it just, it's, it's getting lessened, uh, by the day. That's, that's really a good thing. Um, if the feds would come to their senses and move it off schedule one and we could have real science, then, oh my gosh, <laughs> this could be, it is a miracle to so many people, but broadly to society, if we could loosely regulate, if we could conduct research, if we could bring costs uh, of legal cannabis in line, um, it'd be great things. It, it wouldn't do great things for uh, big pharma. And I'm not really a conspiracy-minded person, but to what degree is that part of the hang-up on the federal level? Yeah, I, I think you've got to be onto something. It just doesn't make sense objectively that it's still on the federal the schedule one list unless there's something behind it with a lot of money i just yeah and you know make sense to me any other way well i mean our current president last president i think combined age is 2000 you know they they come (laughs) from a different age and the senate does yeah yeah the, the whole the whole Senate does. There's no yeah, way. Yeah, average age. The more, average age of average age of the Senate, I think, is 132. Yeah, it's probably probably right up there. And I think the more act, um, you know, it, it'll pass in the House again and again. But there's just not there's no interest in the Senate, and which is amazing. I mean, which is amazing. A majority of those senators come from states that have decided it's okay. To some yeah. degree. Yep. And and it's just so bizarre that they're not even in line with their own states on cannabis policy. Do you feel like psilocybin, switch gears with me here, do you feel like psilocybin can like leapfrog cannabis? <laughs> it already has. Um, you look at the amount of research going on with psilocybin, it's night and day. We know so much about psilocybin just because we are allowing scientists to do their thing. Even though it's on schedule one, the difference is you can go out and you can access psilocybin to do your studies. And uh, cannabis, up until very recently, you couldn't. You know, I'm sure you know the name Dr. Sue Sisley. Um, You know, Dr. Sisley has been approved by the FDA forever to study cannabis on veterans with PTSD. Mm-hmm. But she couldn't get the cannabis. And uh, that's changing a little. But, uh, you know, you had to get it from the feds. Your your research cannabis. Well, they're shit growers. They don't know how to grow it. They don't really have incentive to grow good stuff. And whereas psilocybin, um, my gosh, you have universities that are dedicating so many resources to it. And what I say is if you have a big project, you want to involve academia. Don't ever leave them in charge because it'll never get done. But you want to involve academia because there's expertise and genius there that you just don't find in other sectors of of society. And so the fact that we can allow these brilliant researchers to dig deep on psilocybin, oh, man, the things we're learning. Um, you know, so so the the barrier on the war against drugs, the barricades was cannabis. That was the devil's lettuce. and it just still carries this stigma to to Joe Biden, to Donald Trump, to people who are in charge of things. And psilocybin kind of was overlooked. So 
yeah, psilocybin is going to come off schedule one before cannabis, uh, you know, MDMA, <laughs> which known by a lot of people, the club drug Molly, that's going to come off schedule one before cannabis. So yeah, cannabis research is lagging behind. And uh, if research is lagging behind, then society's lagging behind on that issue. Looking back at your arc with the Divine Assembly, it seems like you were ahead. You were ahead of the times. Yeah, with, maybe. With I don't that. know. So, yeah, for your listeners, Divine Assembly is a uh, church with mushroom sacrament, magic mushrooms. We have one tenet, which is you can commune directly with the divine. And that being the one tenet, no one else has to tell you how to live. You know, we don't need doctrine. We don't need dogma. We don't need hierarchy. Just commune with the divine. It doesn't need to be through psilocybin. It can be through yoga, music, meditation. There are various ways to get there. And at the end of the day, for me, it's really all about community. So I love the community that we are building. And the way that started is I started uh, my psychedelic journey in uh, January 2017, right after I got out of the legislature, and was just having these incredible healing experiences. And so I figured, wow, if, if there's anything on earth that I've seen that I'd call religion, it's this. And uh, having fought against the LDS church to better secure LGBTQ rights in Utah, uh, we were fighting against what they called their religious liberties. And so I gained some expertise on the First Amendment and on the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. and. Uh, figured, okay, if that protects other religions, this should protect what I consider to be my religion. So we formally established, I do believe we were the first formally established out in the open public psilocybin church. Um, not that I really care one way or the other, but yeah, it kind of shocks me. But for psilocybin, clearly we were, we were early on that. Originally, when you set up the church, of course, you you had to make sure that you came out and said, no, we don't, we don't like promote the use, sale, acquisition of a Schedule One drug, right? What's that look like now? Yeah, thank you for that question. We, um, we're still learning. We've only been around not even two years. And uh, a lot of that through the pandemic, well, I guess all of it, if we consider we're yeah. still in the pandemic. and. Uh, our first in-person ceremony was a year ago, and uh, that really scared me. Um, what I want is a safe place for people to experience this. And we usually get people who are older. They live pretty quiet, reserved lives. They've read about this or heard about it from kids or grandkids, and they want a safe group to do it with, right? Other people, younger people, well, they have friends and they'll just go do it in their friend's basement. And so I'm like, cool, we can do this a safe, safe environment. And our first ceremony, it I didn't know what I was doing. We didn't know what we were doing. And so I really backed off. And now we're to the point we don't, in a ceremony that, quote unquote, the divine assembly runs, we don't ever distribute. We... uh we do sound baths, we'll do hape ceremonies, uh, we'll just get together, kind of a potluck. Because the conclusion that I reached and those of us who are really kind of involved in it is people are safer when they're 
participating in ceremonies with people who they really know and know well, because that just takes out a lot of the danger factor. You know, let's talk about sexual predation. Start with that. It, it can largely remove that. Also, if someone has a bad experience, if someone if they are working with a guide or a shaman or someone with a lot of training and more of a formal ceremony, there probably will be some immediate integration. But what will the contact be a week later, a month later? And what we're finding is if people meet each other, they become friends, uh, they really have an organic kind of relationship. Well, if something comes up, they call their buddy like, hey, man, I'm having these dreams or I'm, I'm, what do we do here? And then the guides who, you know, the ones I'm thinking of who are operating on the TDA platform, well, they know what they know and know what they don't know. And so they can send out a message, hey, head of ceremony, someone struggling with this, who can we talk with? So it really becomes, we tried to pattern it after the mycelial network, the growth pattern of Uh, the mushroom. Yeah, you can consider it the roots of the flowering mushrooms, the fruiting mushrooms, but really that is the, the fungus. It's the mycelium. And that's how we view the divine assembly where we have a lot of touch points. And so if someone's struggling, then we'll, we're probably going to know someone who they can talk with and get some help. And we're really excited about the community aspect of it. It's something that I haven't heard about with cannabis, but Man, if you were describing the same situation and you were talking about cannabis, I feel like it would be the same, right? A lot of young people, they just go into their friend's basement and do it. Yeah. But the um, one of the things I think people struggle with in the destigmatizing cannabis as medicine, probably the same thing with psilocybin to an extent, is this, this fear of not knowing what it's going to feel like yeah. and not being around somebody who can help or understand, like not knowing that you could get paranoid and what are you going to do? Is there a lot of that with psilocybin? Like I'm just, as a medical provider, I am fascinated with psilocybin and I have been secretly quoted as, as saying things about the psilocybin research. Like you say, like it's kind of leapfrogging cannabis from a research standpoint, I just, I'm fascinated with the idea of the brain and how it resets. Yeah. Do you feel like spirituality is the way, is one of the key ways to, I guess I should ask a different question. What's the goal of, is the goal to destigmatize psilocybin and get it more accessible? Yes. And I'm going to go back to the question you were about to ask, I think. Um, What is the role of the experience, and I would even say the spiritual experience, in the healing process? Is that what you were? Yeah. And I talk about that with uh, my students. And remember, these are every single student in my class is far smarter than I am. I mean, these are brilliant students. And uh, what I say to them is I say, for the first time in human history, we actually can start to talk about a cure for depression. And the way that works medically is psilocybin, it shuts down the default mode network. The default mode network is the part of our brain that it keeps us alive. I mean, thank God for this default mode network. I mean, you know, 
we we react to danger before we even realize it's danger. I mean, these are our instincts. And that's the stuff that keeps us alive. And it filters out. Think of Buddy the Elf when uh in in uh, uh oh my yeah. gosh, what's it called? The, the, elf, the Chris yeah. yeah, elf. Elf. So, you know, Buddy the Elf, he goes to New York and he's just freaked out by all of it and just amazed by all of it. And that's a brain where the default mode network, it's not that formed, right? <laughs> uh, Buddy yeah. the Elf hadn't seen a lot of trauma, hadn't seen a lot. So he's just, you know, it, it's all new to him. Whereas a typical New Yorker just walks down the street and, man, they don't notice anything. And the way that works is our default mode network, it just filters it out. We hear an ambulance. We hear things that normally would freak out a baby or someone who hadn't seen it and our brain instantly tells us this is not dangerous and then other things like this is dangerous and uh so a lot of that programming is great and a lot of it is really bad because it also factors in the messages we got from you know maybe an abusive father or from times we failed that part of our brain is saying don't try this you're just going to be sad you're going to be heartbroken you can't do this and so it's it's a blessing and a curse. And psilocybin, the way it works medically, is it it shuts down that part of the brain. So other parts of our brain can get to know each other. They can develop true neuronal connections like, well, hello, stranger. I remember you from when I was five years old. And we really can rewire our brain. And that is an important part of it. But I don't think that is all of it. And this is what I ask my students. I say, where you are now in academia, you're allergic to conversations about religion and spirituality in the classroom. Academia, unless you're in a theology class, we just don't discuss it. But what do we do as public health professionals when we see that it is curative of depression in a lot of folks, and then 70% of those folks, when we as researchers, as professionals, talk to them. They want to talk about God. They want to talk about the divine. They want to talk about spirituality. What do we do? And so public health, we're, we're going to have to entertain God concepts. And uh, to me, that is such a fascinating thing that God has worked his way back her way. Sorry, that's how I visualize her. God has worked yeah. her way back into academia through uh, psychedelics, through magic mushrooms. And potentially, to extend that thought, God could work their way back into society. Yeah. Right? Um, in a big way. And, well, not and, just, and not just the society that's already uh, embraced an idea of God from what I would, uh, from the conservative side, but a but a way God can enter through the scientific side, through yeah. the objective side, right? This whole swath of the population that basically discounts religion and discounts God, those are the people that psilocybin can introduce God back to. Well, you just or God back through. You just described the divine assembly's reason for being. Um, I was having these experiences that I think they compare to the religiosity, the wonder of anyone who's ever walked the earth. But then what I quickly say is anyone walking the earth can have similar experiences. And the language 
that we hang around those experiences, it is religious language. And so I was telling my wife, Sarah, I'm to protect this, to allow other people to experience the divine. I'm going to start a church. And I'm telling my best friends and universally, they're like, no, you're not. No. Oh, I'm, I, I, yeah. Knowing your background, uh, you know, where you lived. I mean, come on. They're like, Uh, because, you know, I, I grew up Mormon. Um, and, uh, most of them did too. My wife did. And when people leave the Mormon faith, they don't go to other churches. They largely are like, I was defrauded. I, I'm, I'm done with God. And then they take psychedelics and they're like, oh, maybe I just misunderstood the divine. So it's interesting to see people who were just jaded against religion, against God, find this incredible spirituality. It's, it's, a, it's an awakening. And it is so much fun to be a part of. In your experience, does is there percentages of people that have good versus bad experiences? Do people need, is it like a learning process on how to experience these, uh, these things? Yeah, thank you. For, I love your questions. Um, set and setting. That's what is always talked about in psychedelia. Set is what do you bring to the experience? What is your situation? What is your state of mind? And then setting is where are you doing it? Who are you doing it with? Is it safe? Is it secure? And uh, I had someone just last week, uh, a couple, they wanted to meet with me because she had had a quote unquote bad experience with mushrooms. And so I'm like, well, tell me about that. And she's saying, well, all this stuff from my childhood came up. I, I had forgotten about it. It came up and it was just horrible. And, uh, you know, that's the way this stuff works is parts of our brain that don't know language. They show us images. They show us memories saying, please heal me. Deal with this. And the way I see her situation is oh my gosh, that was that shouldn't have been a bad experience. That could have been a miraculous experience if she had been properly held, if she had been in a setting where people could help her process and deal with that. And she still can. I mean, that's what I was talking about. I'm like, okay, let's integrate that. Let's find the right people. And so I was just having coffee with someone this morning who they're getting together tonight, someone who I consider great in integration. Um, I'm like, talk through this. What was your mind trying to tell you? What does your mind want to heal? And so most of these, if bad experiences largely mean you're in the wrong place, you're with the wrong people. And if you had been in a, in a different place with different people, it might've been extraordinary. I mean, some of my biggest leaps as a human being were with psychedelics and the stuff that came up was sad. It was horrific. It was, it was my mind saying, please deal with this. You know, you've been cramming down, please, please deal with this. And, but I was in situations where, man, I'm just this gooey puddle on the floor. I'm just sobbing, remembering it, thinking about it, just feeling so lonely. And I was just really held well and, uh, could come home with Sarah, my wife, and just talk about it, just continue to integrate and process. And, 
we cram a lot of this stuff down. We try to forget it when we have the opportunity to see it, work through it, and learn lessons and improve and do things differently. And so bad experiences, for the most part, are just bad settings. Do people typically with like the divine assembly or with psilocybin experiences, are they using, are they using low doses, high doses? Are you, is there a protocol that you're kind of jumping in with five milligrams or, or, or is it grams, milligrams? Uh, Or do do you, or, or do people microdose and then do big experiences? Yeah, yes and no to everything you uh, just asked. So Divine Assembly, where we typically end up is we're pretty low dose. Uh, We're like a gram or two, maybe three of, uh, you know, three, you're starting to get kind of heavy. So microdoses typically are half a gram or less. And then what they call heroic doses, um, I just call it a full send. that's five grams. And, uh, you know, I've done, I've done much higher than that. Um, I haven't recently, I haven't for like a year, I haven't done a big, big dose and I think it's about time. Um, so you can, you can find magic and wonder in all of it. You know, again, the part of the reason, again, divine assembly, people are looking primarily for community and they're looking for a safe initial journey. I don't feel any need for you know, people that I personally work with for first timers, I don't feel a big need to do a full send. It's just like, let's, let's dip your toes in the water and get you comfortable with it. And again, this is part of set, right? If you go in super nervous, then man, who knows, knows what's going to end up. But if you kind of figure, okay, I kind of, kind of have a loose steering wheel here. I kind of know where a gas pedal and brakes sometimes work. Um, you're just going to be more relaxed. And so I think it's, we're not in a rush on this. And so uh, I kind of like the idea of people going in with one or two grams. Let's see some pretty lights and some shapes and, you know, maybe some cool things. And then next time, let's go a little deeper and see how that goes. And uh, so I'm, you know, my wife and I, we were full sent. We, we started on ayahuasca and uh, you went all the way. Yeah. And my biggest, and yeah, we, we jumped in the deep end and, uh, I'm kind of glad we did. And my, my biggest, best experiences were with really heavy doses. And, uh, I really went deep, but thank heavens I was with people who could hold me because, uh, it could have got messy, could have got sloppy. Were they not there? But, you know, like I said, I haven't taken a huge dose for a long time, kind of because, Does you know, in, in part there's a laziness because it's a lot of work. <laughs> um, but also Maybe I'm just justifying avoiding the work, but I think a gram, gram and a half, two grams, my brain kind of knows where I want to be now, and it takes me there, and I can do considerable work with a pretty small dose. It, it's it's literally like we're talking about cannabis in a lot of ways. It Starting is. slow and set and setting and the hallucinogenic effects of cannabis, which are definitely different than psychedelic. Um, I'm going to debate you there. You think, but I, well, see, and I've, I've read a little bit and again, fascinated with this idea of using these substances to assist in experiencing life and, and this spirituality. How does cannabis fit in then? So I, I talk about this with 
everyone. <laughs> I talk about this with a lot of people, um, cannabis as a hallucinogen. Now that I have had a number of uh, psychedelic hallucinogenic experiences, and by that I mean tons, um, you know, over a hundred easily. My mind knows where I want to be. It knows where I encounter the divine. And I, I call that, I mean, I steal it from uh, Henry James. It's uh, the mystical state of consciousness. That's where the divine dwells. Cannabis can fully get me there. And it's not, I, I was not having these experiences with cannabis before I experienced psychedelics. And now with cannabis, if I'm in the right place, with the right people or by myself, just walking around downtown, I can have a full-on psychedelic experience with cannabis. My brain's like, okay, I know what you're trying to do. We'll, we'll get you there. It'll take you the rest of the way. Yeah, and I think that's, that's probably a huge part of the reason that I'm not doing big doses of uh, uh, psilocybin is because cannabis is helping me get there. Awesome. I've experienced some pretty strong spiritual and hallucinogenic experiences with cannabis. And I think people can. There's some, frankly, there's sometimes you're in, uh, people will be in such acute pain that that's where they need to go. Yeah. And there's a lot of medical providers who are a little scared to tell people that's what you've got to do because you don't, you don't quite know what their set and settings are. Right. And it's not, even though it is kind of a community, it's not a formal community, and there's still there's still a lot of stigma. And I think the more people, maybe this is the case, that the psilocybin community almost has to be a little tighter, and it's smaller, and it can be. I don't know if that's true at all. And the cannabis community is getting so big and kind of dispersed, it's hard to get people to communicate. But to argue against myself, most of the people I know who are like elderly who want to try cannabis, it's with their sons, daughters, yeah. you know, it's with somebody younger who's going to help them with that set and setting piece. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I love the term entheogens, and an entheogen is something that uh, brings us closer to God. Um, I, I, I mean, maybe the original entheogen was alcohol. Uh, we sure know the Greeks used it heavily, and uh, they they believed that that was a way to interact with the gods. And cannabis, you know, we, we see that all over the world. And I think part of it is you look at the pathway of those two substances, and they did become more recreational. And I, man, I just don't, I need a better word. I don't, I have no problem with recreational. You, fun is a way to worship. Um, it's an important way to worship, but, you know, I guess you look at all the alcohol ads, you look at the bars, you look at, let's start there. You just see a lot of unhealthy use of alcohol to where, is it an entheogen? Well, I think maybe naturally it is, but it's, it's abused in a lot of unhealthy ways. Cannabis being forced underground. There's a lot of that too, but, uh, I think they can be very, very powerful entheogens. It's just, again, set and setting. Um, you know, a lot of people use cannabis because they want to get stoned. They want to drink because they want to get drunk. Whereas, yeah, grandma and grandpa, when it's time to use psilocybin, well, they want to heal. 
And so they approach it with a different set, a different mindset. And so they end up having spiritual experiences that I think are fully there, can fully be there with cannabis as an entheogen and alcohol as an entheogen. It's just the way we approach them. We're, we always do, even if we don't realize it, we always do have some steering wheel brake and gas on these trips. What are we going to do with these entheogens? And uh, with the Divine Assembly, people approach magic mushrooms as uh, a sacrament. This is a way to encounter the divine and to heal in that mystical state of consciousness. So that tends to be the experience they have. It's a pretty cool way to think about cannabis in that, you know, quote unquote medicinally, but in that experiential, that spiritual setting, as if it were more like a psilocybin substance. I think people would get a lot more benefit out of it medicinally if they were used, if they were just, you know, just 10% more mindful. Yeah. I mean, let's go back to what we were talking about earlier. Um, you know, cannabis can fully get us into that mystical state of consciousness. Okay, I guess, why does it get me there? Because that's where I want it to get me. And yeah. uh, that's what I want from it. And so our minds are incredibly powerful. And I think these entheogens, we evolved with them. And we evolved with cannabis. You know, we have the endocannabinoid system, for heaven's sake. Our body knows what to do with this substance. And I think cannabis is an incredibly wonderful, powerful, spiritual entheogen. It is something that absolutely can bring us closer to God. And when I'm talking about people healing from depression with psilocybin, they quickly, 70% of them, want to talk about spirituality. They want to talk about the divine because that's what they're hoping to find. They're hoping to find something beyond the mundane. and if cannabis users, like I do now, like many people do, I think if that were the set, they probably would find it. And if they're properly held, if they're with people in a place where that is the expected outcome, then I think we would find it more often. So, yeah, even, yes, we've medicalized cannabis in other places, and heavens, we call it recreational use. Let's call it full-on spiritual use, you know? And, uh, I think we're going to get there as a society. We're going to rediscover the magic of of cannabis, the uh, spirituality of it, see it more as an entheogen, and it's going to become even more uh, curative than it is now. I completely agree with you on that one. And um, I hope we can together make that happen Yeah, uh, a little bit at a time. I think that's a pro- that's a project we can work on together. Yeah, I, well, I would love to do that. You know, I'll tell you an interesting thing. Uh, again, let's go back to have mushrooms leapfrogged cannabis. Oh, 100%. The Divine Assembly, we are fully entitled to all the religious protections of the Baptist Church, of Muslim, of any religion. And I think the courts would see that like they have with ayahuasca. There's some very important, strong ayahuasca cases. If someone wanted to start a church with cannabis, that'd be a different issue because it's to the courts, it still is the devil's lettuce. They don't see the entheogenic, the the God greeting qualities of it. They think, ah, these are just stoners trying to pull something off. Yeah. And you know, you look at the uh the 
now I, I don't know if it was, I don't I don't know anything about this church in Oakland. Maybe it's the shadiest thing ever. I I just can't speak one way or another. Maybe it's the best thing ever. But in Oakland, where they have decriminalized cannabis, or sorry, decriminalized uh, magic mushrooms, a church out there was raided. But it wasn't really raided for the mushrooms. What I can tell, it was raided because. It was giving out cannabis as a sacrament. And they're saying, we have a legal program for doing this in California. You're outside the program. So even though a mushroom church was raided, my understanding is it was raided more for the cannabis aspect of it. So Wow. Yeah, that so, doesn't surprise me, though, because that's where our society is. I couldn't imagine a cannabis church yeah. uh, because I would think that, yeah, I mean, the neighbors, the cops, everybody would be up in arms. Well, I'll tell you what would be fun with Divine Assembly. We, I tell people we're entitled to religious protection, but don't be stupid about it. This is yeah. a schedule one substance. <laughs> yes. Let's be smart. Let's not flaunt it. Let's make sure we're not diverting it to kids and to, you know, outside of a spiritual setting. Let's be smart. And so how could you do a cannabis church in a smart way? Um, I think it would be great for in Utah medical card holders. So not me, but people who have their medical cards get together and worship with it. And don't There's, do it in a way where you're just messing around. Do it in a way where you're yeah. safe, where you're sincere and see what comes out of that. And I bet absolute magic could come out of that. And the police, they can't mess with that. If people, if card holders are getting together and uh, enjoying and con, it together. Con, enjoying it together. There's been just this year Steve, a couple of groups to start working on that project together. Uh, there's a there's a yoga group out actually in central Utah that's doing it next week for Cannabis Christmas 420. Perfect. Um, kind of starting starting that off. And there's some therapy groups that are that are thinking of doing it. I'm involved in one called an effusion group that we're, we're trying to you know figure out just what you said. How can you create the set and setting, uh, you know, maybe a therapist yeah. to make sure that people are held, uh, yep. as your very good way to put it. Um, yeah. Well, how I, can, how can I help? I mean, um, you know, get in touch with me. I, I have some legal skills and a lot of, uh, research in this area. Um, I would love to help because again, personally, I think that, uh, Cannabis is a very powerful entheogen. I'm using it uh, illegally. I'm using it as an entheogen, and uh, it shouldn't be illegal, but but it is. That's just how it is for me right now. I'm not going to, I don't qualify for a card. I'm not going to go lie to get one, and not if people do, whatever. I'm not trying to be judgy, but I don't want to do that. I'm trying to walk through the front door in life these days, and uh, I haven't always done that. And so I don't have a card. I'm using cannabis illegally. But for people who can use it legally to get together and worship with that, um, and to me, worship means connecting with ourself, others, the universe. Oh, that just makes me excited. I think that there's so much magic that can be had there. And I want to reclaim religion. I'm sorry. I'm just going to, you got me fired up here. So I'm just going to, I view God. I view God as a rat-infested crack house with good bones. I think that people have co-opted the name God, the concept of God, and they're doing it for control and for base reasons. And I think that, you know, 
some of us can can kind of re we can god is a reclamation product i think that people create gods it's not the other way around and we can create some very worthy gods and some very worthy religions uh we can we can worship we can achieve rapture uh we can be part of the divine um by things that we create by proper set and setting and uh I think that that absolutely can happen with cannabis and I'd be very excited to help friends out with that project. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. We'll definitely reach out to you. Is there a way that people can connect with you in, in general Is is your Facebook page, the divine assembly page, is that a good place to interact or find out more um, about like this and the psilocybin aspect, learn a little bit about it? Do you, do you want to do that? I, well, I, I do. Um, I am a flawed human with some mental health issues. And so a lot of social media scares me. Uh, part of my story, I don't know if you know it, is I really fell apart when I was in the Senate. And part of that was not opening mail for eight months. And uh, I still don't open mail. Uh, you know, I have people help me with that. And so emails, they kind of scare me. And so I really do want to connect, but it's, it's, it becomes difficult to connect with me. Even people I really love and want to connect with just part of Steve being Steve is I kind of hide from that. So, um, you can see what we're doing on the divine assembly.org. And if someone emails the divine assembly.org, people will look at it and they will respond and things that I should respond to. They will work with me to help me, Respond. That's a roundabout way, but I just don't want talking about holding people. It's important to me. And if I don't get back to people, know that that's it's just something that I battle. But I do now have people at the Divine Assembly. They will get back and they will work to get me in touch with them. That's a shitty answer, but that's a you know what? That's uh, that that's okay. And uh, for people uh, at the Utah in the Weeds podcast, if you watch us on Discover Marijuana on YouTube or you listen to this podcast, that channel on YouTube, Discover Marijuana, all the podcast episodes are there. And you could go there and make a comment on the video and my team would would uh, help f- find that too. So the divineassembly.org, uh, utahmarijuana.org or Discover Marijuana on YouTube, comment on a video. And we'll, we'll help as yeah, well. That, that would be great. Uh, you know, I struggle to give, you know, my church, my people, uh, the attention that they really deserve as wonderful human beings. And so, yeah, if I'm now flooded with a bunch of cannabis concerns, <laughs> sure. then, oh, wow, this is even more out of control. Yep. And so, yeah, if they want to deal with you, go through you, your your podcast, the magic you're making, and then we interface, that would be wonderful. Yeah, that would be great. Well, Steve, is there anything that we've missed? (laughs) How many universes have we missed? But we have covered some good things. Yes, we have. Well, thanks for for coming on. Uh, I I really appreciate this this discussion. I think that it's, it's just so important for people and me to listen, learn a little more well what what a great discussion thank you and thank you for the work you're doing and let's make some magic together absolutely for those of you who aren't subscribed to the podcast uh this has been a great uh discussion with steve urquhart 
And Utah in the Weeds, you can subscribe on any podcast player. You can also listen to all of our episodes on Discover Marijuana on YouTube. Uh, Stay safe out there.